You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Your host, Andrew Donaldson. This is Herd Tell. Ah, Herd Tell Show. It's a Wednesday, folks. You're halfway through the work week as the year of our Lord 2022 rolls on. February marches exorbitantly forward, trying to crush all your hopes and dreams before you can get to spring. Don't let it fight back. It's going to pass, folks. I promise. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you for joining us on Herd Tell for this February the 16th. So glad you're with us. We're going to cover a lot of different things today. Very important topics. Uh, You've been asking for it. We've been working on it. Uh, We're going to talk about Canada, Uh, the politics, the trucker protest, the border closures, the politics behind it. Is America getting the actual story they should be getting in our media? We're going to talk all of that with an actual Canadian. Everybody in America wants to tell Canadians what they think about it. We're going to ask him directly. What a concept. Uh, Returning guest, though, our buddy David Clement from the Consumer's Choice Center. He's been on this program before talking about elections in Canada. So we're going to start out talking about the politics inside Parliament Hill before we talk about the protests outside in Ottawa. He's going to bring his perspective and turn down the noise on this very noisy topic that's been all over social media and media. Uh, Also on the program today, I'm going to talk a little education. There's some push to put cameras in the classroom. I think it's a horrible idea. So does a writer in Forbes. We're going to cover that piece. Also, uh, two glaring stories that I encourage you to read for yourself. Uh, The Durham filing, the John Durham investigation. He has a filing that's been making the rounds on social media and media. You can read that for yourself. We'll touch on that. And Trump's accounting firm has gone to distance itself and said some things that have been picked up in the media. Going to encourage you to read that for yourself. We're going to touch in on that as well. Also, to end the program, uh, a great story about a meme and a joke about the guy playing video games in his mom's basement. Well, it's not so funny when he raises 30-some-odd million dollars for charity doing it. 
great story that goes against the grain of a stereotype. Happy to bring you that story at the end. But first, uh, let's start with the Biden administration. We have had a constant criticism of this president on this program. Uh, It is my humble but accurate opinion that his administration consistently, and we have a year's worth of data on this now, when they are faced with a problem, uh, when something gets hot in the media, when the narratives turn against them, they go for the quick fix, they go for the optic fix, they go for a narrative change instead of going for a good policy change or for something that might be more substantive to actually fix the problem. They're doing it again. Uh, There's reporting out of the Washington Post and elsewhere that the White House is exploring a gas tax holiday. Uh, Jeff Stein of the Washington Post reports it this way. He said the White House is exploring a gas tax holiday despite discomfort with the idea from inside the building, meaning the White House. Biden's getting clobbered with high prices and Democratic pollsters think it may help. Larry Summers calls it, quote, short-sighted, ineffective, goofy, and gimmicky. And then there's a full write-up in the Washington Post. Uh, The first part of that piece uh, goes this way. The White House and top Democratic lawmakers, this is by Tony Rom and Jeff Stein, by the way, uh, top Democratic lawmakers are beginning to weigh a new push for a federal gas tax holiday, potentially pausing fees at the pump as part of a broader campaign to combat rising prices. The early deliberations come days after a group of vulnerable Senate Democrats introduced a bill that would suspend the gas tax of roughly 18 cents a gallon for the rest of the year. Uh, Asked about the proposal, White House signaled that all options are on the table and the administration tries to ease the growing financial burdens facing Americans during a period of high inflation. For now, the White House has not offered any official explicit endorsement of the policy. Behind the scenes, top aides have debated whether it would provide meaningful relief or ultimately serve to benefit the producers of gas more than the consumers of it. Some senior officials also fear the policy might be difficult to end later since no politician would want to be seen as rising gas prices, according to two people familiar with the matter who spoke on the conditions of anonymity to describe the process. I want to go back. That's from the Washington Post piece. I want to go back to Jeff Stein's tweet. Um, Biden gets clobbered with high prices and deep pollsters think it may help. Larry Summers calls it gimmicky, short-sighted, ineffective, and goofy. Both of those things are true. This has been floated a couple times over the years uh, that why don't you just suspend the gas tax? There's a couple reasons you don't. Gas prices are not reactionary to the moment. They are a lagging indicator. The prices of the pump now are because of policies 18 months, two years, three years ago, or a year ago. If the administration was really worried about gas prices, they would do what would bring gas prices down. They would increase domestic productivity. They would increase the access to gasoline and oil. First thing he did, day one, bragged about it, was to start shutting down pipelines. Now, again, that's a lagging indicator. That didn't raise prices by itself. But as you go down the road, that makes it more expensive. His governmental policies and environmental policies will restrict more oil production. Now, you can talk about the environmental impact of that. I'm just saying that's going to bring up the gas of prices. And then there's the international crises. Whenever we have a crisis overseas, especially like right now with Russia and Ukraine, and Russia being a massive uh, fossil fuel provider, along with the Ukraine, who also has numerous uh, things like natural gas resources and who pipelines have to run through, those things affect gas prices as well. Chaos in the world, That's partly on the president, how he's handling things. Domestic oil production policies, that's partially on the president. Now, I know he's only been in power for a year, but he's been in power for a year. And we've seen over and over again, 
when the going gets tough in the news media, he goes for an optics fix. This would be gimmicky. It wouldn't really do anything. And I doubt they do it because if they do it, they'd have to push it out past the election in November because the last thing they're going to want to do is try to be seen as raising taxes or raising prices going into an election year. I think this is smoke and mirrors. I think this is gets a little bit of reeking of desperation because they don't really know what to do here. To be fair to the Biden administration, again, gas prices are a lagging indicator. The gas prices are not all the president's fault, but he hasn't done a whole lot to make it better. People understand that. People are seeing other economic things that he's done and aren't really comfortable with it. And gas prices is just the immediate way that people can react to it. So whether or not they do this, I don't think it's good policy unless they did it permanently. I don't think it's going to be helpful. And I do think it plays into the growing problem this administration has. They're reactionary to the media reports. They're reactionary to narratives. And they're completely defensive whenever they're criticized about something that actually hurts them in the polling. They understand the polling isn't great for the president right now. They understand it's an election year that the Democrats probably aren't going to do very well in. And this is starting to reek of throwing things at the wall to see what it sticks to try to do something about it. So, Mr. President, please leave these gimmicky things alone. Quit going for the optic fixes. If you just have good, consistent policies, a lot of this stuff will work itself out. You know what will also raise gas prices and make markets nervous? A president who bounces from thing to thing, depending on what the news item is of the day. Start with those little things, Mr. President. Start fixing some of those bigger problems you have. A lot to cover today. Short opening segment. A lot more to get to. More Hurtel right after this. Uh, welcome back to Hurtel. Uh, not going to spend a lot of time on these two items, but I do want to mention them because they've been all over folks' social media and folks are talking about it. And I'm going to encourage you to do your own homework. Uh, we always try to promote read the source material yourself. Don't take a talking heads word for it. Don't just smash send on that thread because it's somebody you like online. Actually do your own homework. There's two items that have been in the news and they both involve former President Trump. Uh, one of them is the accounting form Mazars uh, cut ties with the Trump organization. Uh, they said that they could not trust some financial disclosure forms they were getting from the Trump organization over a specific period of time. Uh, the Washington Post put it this way in the letter, Mazar's executive, Willie J. Kelly, voiced new concerns about the statements which the firm helped Trump prepare and which have come under scrutiny recently by the New York Attorney General, Letitia James. Among others, New York prosecutors have set their sights on the Trump organization, obviously, and that's part of this. But here's the, here's the nitty bit of this. Um, we have come to this conclusion based in part upon the findings made by the New York Attorney General on January 18, 2022. This is a direct quote from the letter. Uh, our own investigation and information received from internal and external sources, while we have not concluded that the various financial statement as a whole contains material discrepancies, based upon the totality of the circumstances, we believe our advice to you to no longer rely on those financial statements is appropriate. You can read this entire letter at ordinary-times.com. We have it. It's in a PDF. You can even search it. It's a short letter. It's about two pages. There's a lot of caterwauling online about it. Read it for yourself. Uh, there's a lot of loggery words in here that look like they're saying a lot when they're really not. Big takeaway is they just don't want to be a part of this investigation. And if anything comes up untoward, they don't want the blame for it. There's another uh, read it for yourself item at ordinary-times.com. I encourage you to read it. 
This one is also PDF. It's a lot longer, but the cool thing about these PDF is you can hit control F and search terms. Uh, this one's gotten really loud. Uh, John Durham, the long running special prosecutor that was appointed under Trump to look at things uh, involving the Russian investigation and related matters. He has done a filing back on Friday and certain parts of this filing really set social media and conservative media on fire. Uh, the problem is there's not a whole lot of fire once you get through all the smoke of what's being said. Now, you can parse this out yourself. Again, read this for yourself, Ordinary-Times.com, uh, Durham filing, read it for yourself. It's a PDF form. The filing, this is from the New York Times, was ostensibly about potential conflicts of interest. But it also recounted a meeting in which Mr. Seussman, that's the guy that's under indictment for a different conversation he had that he allegedly lied about. This is a separate matter. Uh, Mr. Seussman told the CIA about odd Internet data suggesting that someone using a Russian-made smartphone may have had connection to networks of Trump Tire in the White House, among other places. Mr. Seussman had obtained that information for a client, a technology executive named Rodney Joffe. Another paragraph in the court filing said Mr. Joffe's company, Newstar, had helped maintain internet-related servers for the White House and that he and his associated associates exploited this arrangement, that is in quotes, by mining certain records to gather derogatory information about Mr. Trump. Citing this filing, Fox News inaccurately declared that Mr. Durham had said he had evidence that Hillary Clinton's campaign had paid a technology company to, quote, infiltrate a White House server. The Washington Examiner claimed that this all meant they had been spying on Mr. Trump's White House office and when mainstream publications held back, Mr. Trump and his allies began shaming the news media. There's quotes from Trump here, but we're going to skip to the important part. There were many problems with all this. This is reading from the New York Times. For one, much of this is not new. The New York Times had reported in October that Mr. Suzman had told the CIA about data suggesting Russian-made smartphones called Yoda, Yoda phones had been connected to networks at Trump Tower and the White House, among other places. The conservative media also skews what the filing said. For example, Mr. Durham's filing never used the word infiltrate, and it never claimed that Mr. Joffe's company was being paid by the Clinton campaign. More importantly, and contrary to the reporting, the filing never said the White House data had come under scrutiny was from the Trump area. In fact, according to David Dagon, a Georgia Institute of Technology data scientist who helped develop the Yoda analysis, the data the so-called DNS logs, which are records of when computers and smartphones have prepared to communicate with servers over the Internet, came from the Barack Obama presidency. Quote, what Trump and some other news outlets are saying is wrong, said Jody Westby and Mark Ross, both lawyers for Mr. Dagon. Quote, the security, cybersecurity researchers were investigating malware in the White House, not spying on the Trump campaign. And to our knowledge, all of the data they used was non-private DNS data from before Trump took office. Mr. Durham's office has declined comment. There's a lot to unpack here. Um, first of all, we know the Clintons are dirty and do all kinds of untoward things. That doesn't mean they're hiding behind every bush. Doesn't mean they had any involvement here that was nefarious. Maybe, but that's not what Mr. Durham's actually putting in black and white. Remember when you read these social media stories and media stories, what they say needs to match the black and white of the filings, the court orders, whatever the case may be, the letter in the Mazars case. That's why we're presenting them to you directly. Don't take anybody's word for it. Don't take my word for it. Read it for yourself, Ordinary-Times.com. You can read both of these documents. They're hot items on social media. You can read them for yourself, draw your own conclusions. And that way, when you wade into the discourse, you actually know what you're talking about and are armed with facts. And you can do with that as you may. That's what we try to get you to do here on Herd Tell. 
And we'll continue right after this. Hi, welcome back to Herd Tell. This is fun. Been a minute since we talked to him. One of our favorites, David Clement, old buddy of ours. Uh, been doing podcasts with him on and off for a while. He has part of the Consumer Choice Show that is excellent. He's written all over the place, uh, up in Canada and in the States. Buddy, how you been doing? Oh, uh, <laughs> it's an interesting time. It's an interesting time here in Canada, but uh, all things considered, doing pretty well. Now, you're supposed to be our quiet neighbor to the north. What happened? Yeah, yeah, it's okay. So, um, the abbreviated abbreviated version. The Trudeau government announced a mandate for truckers um, that they would have to be vaccinated to enter the country. Um, essentially, keeping that in line with everybody else. Um, that sparked a lot of irritation. Um, a trucker freedom convoy. Um, somewhat organically developed of people wanting to go to Ottawa to protest. They went to Ottawa, they protested. There were a lot of people there. Um, they've locked down, or they had locked down several of the streets, basically blocking them up um, in what turned into what I would call like a giant block party. Um, so lots of hilarious, but depending on whose side you're on, also quite frustrating images of people setting up hot tubs and having concerts and beers and some guy had a pizza oven. Um, and then things spread and some folks decided to block um, our land borders with the US. And in response to that, which is really where we are kind of now, is the federal government has um, enacted the Emergencies Act, which allows for them to do a variety of different things, usually well beyond the scope of government. Um, and that's where we are today. That's about as quick as I could get through yeah. <laughs> what's transpired. And that's uh, just for folks listening at home. You're a bona fide Canadian. I'm an American. The American side of this has been reported very differently than the Canadian side from the research we've yes. been doing. But before we get to the block party outside and the protests, um, what's going on inside Parliament Hill? Because that's really where this story started. Uh, in fact, last time we had you on this program, we had just got done with the Canadian elections. Um, mm -hmm. We had talked about some of the changes and the shifts. Trudeau uh, survived those elections, kind of mm -hmm. status quo maintained just to really dumb it down. I know there's a lot more nuance than that, but that's kind of what happened there. But there's been some interesting movements in the parties between the liberals and the conservatives inside mm -hmm. Parliament Hill in the weeks going up to and then starting to overlap this protest. And that's part of the story that really hasn't been talked about much. Yeah. So um, in the in the kind of midst of all this or happen, happening um, coincidentally alongside of it, the conservatives in caucus. So these are for Americans. This would be your equivalent of your congressman, um, congressmen and women uh, voted to oust the leader of the Conservative Party by a pretty overwhelming majority. Um, that was Aaron O'Toole, so he is no longer leader of the Conservative Party. They elected or nominated a interim leader, Candace Bergen, who is from Manitoba. And um, the Conservative Party is, is really dealing with how they want to approach 
um, the Freedom Convoy, whether or not they are in support. Uh, I would say loosely speaking, they were in support in the early stages. Um, some of that support has waned, depending on which member of parliament you're talking to. Um, and then on the flip side, on the in the Liberal Party, so obviously you have Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, but I think the real uh, news of the day is a member of parliament who is a liberal in Quebec actually held a press conference saying that he is opposed to the continuation of a lot of these COVID policies. So he broke ranks um, with the liberal party and in Canadian politics, that is almost unheard of. Usually the consequence for that is you lose all your senior positions. You then lose your party status. And as soon as that, that's the political kiss of death. Um, which virtually guarantees you are no longer electable whenever the next election is. Um, so both of those things have happened inside of the time frame of all of these protests. Um, talking to David Clement, something else uh, that I don't think the American folks that are jumping on this realize when we're talking about restrictions and talking about policy in Canada, you do have the parliament system and you also have the provincial si- or the provincial system, excuse me. Mm-hmm. Talk about how that affects things, because we've already been seeing some of the reports, and I don't think the American side is getting this. Some of these mm-hmm. restrictions are on the provincial level. Uh, some of these restrictions are from the federal government level. Uh, Trudeau does not function the same way as, for example, an American president functions. And that's Correct. a bit of nomenclature that I think we really need to fully understand this story. Yeah. So here is what's provincial. And then here is what is federal. So mask mandates are provincial. Generally speaking, there are some back and forth in Alberta where communities want to maintain mask mandates. Proof of vaccination is provincial. The distribution of vaccines is provincial. Restrictions on businesses. So capacity limits, what can open, when they have to close, all of those rules, bars, restaurants, gyms, sporting events, etc. That's all provincial. Federally, it's Border policy, so the testing or um, vaccine requirements to enter the country, um, those are federal. And for the most part, that is it. So the federal government does not, because we are more decentralized in many senses than the U.S., the federal government does not actually control much of the restrictions that Canadians have been living with for two years. Now, of course, the counterpoint to that decentralization is now the Trudeau government has called for what they're calling emergency powers in the Mm -hmm. Canadian system. Uh, Now, in America, we know how that lands with us. But what does that mean to you as a Canadian? What are those powers? How are they entailed? Uh, What all is entailed with those? Do they have windows? Uh, Is it martial law like the cranks are actually saying? What's actually going on with the emergency powers? So it's not martial law. But the Emergencies Act is designed for essentially a situation where no rules on the books and no laws on the books can deal with a rapidly evolving situation. So I don't think that this situation even remotely comes close to that threshold. And the Canadian Civil Liberties Association has, in my opinion, rightly pointed that out. I mean, if people are committing crimes by blocking up the border, well, I mean, those are crimes on the books. You arrest those people. Um, That is traditionally how we enforce crime. 
or solve crime. What this allows the government to do is all sorts of things that I'm not very comfortable with, mostly because it can be done largely without a warrant. So an example would be if you're one of uh, Minister Freeland, who's our finance minister, has said that they'll be able to close the bank accounts, close the corporate accounts um, of those supporting the Freedom Convoy or if their trucks are involved in the Freedom Convoy. Um, And that is done without a warrant. So I do not like that um, because you, as, as in the United States, there are supposed to be safeguards built into this. Now, the Emergencies Act is supposed to be expired uh, in 30 days. Um, so I guess that would be the one positive. But in retrospect for, for viewers, the only the, the last time in, moder- in the modern era where something like this has been put forward was actually by Justin Trudeau's father, Pierre Trudeau, during what we call the October crisis, which was when Quebec uh, separatist terrorists were putting bombs in mailboxes. They were kidnapping government ministers. They killed um, some of them. So that was like a a serious terrorism threat. Now, that was a different act. Uh, There are differences between the two, um, but this does open the door to what I would say would be a relatively uncomfortable uh, precedent, Um, especially since, from my view, any crimes that are being committed are not um, unsolvable with the current means that we have. Yeah, we're talking to David Clement, our friend up in Canada, uh, even though he's our colleague with things like Big Talker Net, and he is with the Consumer Choice Center. When we come back, we're going to dig into it. Who's in the convoy? Uh, how the Trudeau government is being played? What the actual Canadian people think? Everybody's telling them what they think. We're just going to ask them directly. What a concept. <laughs> More on that with David Clement on Hertel right after this. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell, talking to our buddy up in Canada, David Clement. Really sharp guy's been on the program before. All right, let's just dig into it here because the trucking side of it and the truck protest folks have been getting a lot of very positive social media and media attention, especially on the right side of the spectrum down here in the States. Is the States and what we're seeing in America an accurate representation of going on with these protests? Because I don't know that we have the layers of it. We see freedom, we see flags, we see protests. Are we getting the accurate information here in the States of what's going on in the ground in Canada? No, um, not really. And I would say that most commentators, predominantly on the right, have gotten it wrong. But that doesn't mean that this protest is wildly unpopular. Um, And so I actually have some of the, the figures. They're about a week old. Um, so they may have changed a little bit, some going up, some going down. Um, so about 54% of Canadians feel that it's, the t- it's time to end pandemic restrictions. 43% viewed the initial protest in Ottawa as respectful and appropriate, and 32% of Canadians felt like they had a lot in common with the protesters. So it's uh, a bit of a mixed bag in regards to where Canadians stand. Um, but where, in my view, American commentators have got it wrong 
is their endorsement of or their failure to distinguish between the border blockades and what happened in Ottawa. So the border blockades are very problematic. So most most Americans, most Canadians do not know that 1.2 billion with a B dollars a day of trade crosses the land border every day between Canada and the United States. In my opinion, the greatest trading relationship in the world in, in regards to the disruption. So it is strange to see law and order conservatives cheer that part of the of the protest on because that has a very serious impact on the food that is on Canadian shelves, the goods that we order, and and I mean virtually anything we have crossing the border from the United States. And so I would say that that is kind of the biggest blind spot right now. You touched on it earlier. Um, the part that makes the nuance on this so hard is the uh, Trudeau government isn't exactly covering itself in glory here, especially civil liberty wise. You already touched on the fact that they are doing the uh, asset stuff where they're going through bank accounts. There's accusations that they're mm-hmm. going through social media to find out information on people. Uh, this is troubling stuff, uh, regardless of whether it was attached to a protest or not. Mm-hmm. What are the laws in Canada? Because your free speech laws are a little bit different. Your system is a little bit different. But I got to think that even people that don't maybe support the protest see that and go, no, 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 wait a minute. That's way too far. And this is a really bad precedent. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure. And that bothers me a lot that I can't answer that and say that there are a lot of Canadians who would be upset with some of the, what I view as over instances of overreach. And to me, this is just a product of all levels of government, federal, provincial, and local in Ottawa, for example, really just failing to enforce the law. I mean, what happens, like an example, what happens if you leave your car in the the main street of your town for five days? You're going to go back and it's going to be towed. The fact that they didn't get on that early enough or initiate that process early enough where they made it to be such a hassle because then there were more vehicles. It just really is like the the calamity of errors overlapping on top of each other. But again, I don't know. I don't know how concerned ordinary Canadians are about these instances of, of potential overreach. They should be. And I always say, and this is very similar to what I would say to Democrats in the United States, whenever you want a policy implemented that's drastic and extraordinary, you should have to say, I want Donald Trump to have that power. I want Tom Cotton to have the power to freeze bank accounts without a warrant, to shut down business licenses without a warrant. When you say it that way, it becomes a lot more uncomfortable. And this is what I say to my liberal colleagues here in Canada is, well, I mean, imagine if former conservative prime minister Stephen Harper was enacting these extraordinary measures when indigenous communities were protesting the building of a pipeline. Or, and it and, and really, in many of the similar tactics, it wasn't a block party, um, but they were blocking roads and stopping trucks and creating human barricades and preventing goods from moving over certain certain uh, points. And so, uh, rightfully so, Canadians, or especially liberal Canadians, would have been outraged if that had ever been the case. 
but they seem to have that giant blind spot where it's like, well, if it's my team doing it and I agree, well, then maybe it's okay this time. But every time you give the government an inch, you have to remember that your opposition will then have that inch to take. Yep. And we're talking to David Clement, host of Consumer Choice Radio and of the Consumer Choice Center. Great program with him and our buddy, Al Elisoski. Make sure you check that out. The other accusation that has come out of this is, and I touched on it when I covered the story to start with, is when I see a big movement like this, the first thing I do is I kind of try to turn down the noise. I look at leadership and I look at the money because that usually gets me to the truth pretty close. The Mm -hmm. accusation is, is that uh, yeah, the protesters in the streets, the truckers, but there are untowards un- individuals, especially folks in Canada's right and far right that uh, are known to be problematic, are either co-oping or along for the ride, or some people have even accused them of being behind these protests. How much of that do you think is true? How much of that is getting through the media? Is that an actual concern in Canada? I know the government's saying it, but of course, they've got an agenda as well. Uh, help us get through the noise on some of that. Yeah, I mean, I would rank that as mostly not true, only because we're talking about a movement that really didn't have much leadership. And yes, some very problematic people kind of tied themselves onto that. But if you had read the news clippings three, four days in advance in Canadian media, you would have thought that this was our January 6th. Obviously, it was not. Um, That doesn't mean we should downplay some of the crazy or racist or bigoted people whom were taking part in this um, and displaying their bigotry for the world to see. That's a problem. Um, But I would say by and large, most of the protesters, whether they're committing crimes by blocking streets or borders, are uh, are not sinister. They're wrong, but they're not like sinister bigots or racists or anything along those lines. And I think that most of the the story on that was was misguided. It was almost as if that was the impression decided upon in advance, and then we sought out examples of that to reconfirm our pre-existing bias. And the same goes for the people who support the the protesters, regardless of the problematic aspects. They decided that the protest was good, and they just kind of put the horse blinders on in regards to some of those problematic people. So it, there's a lot more nuance there than than we would be led to believe. Yeah, there almost always is. Uh, David Clement bringing us that nuance. All right, let's come back to where we started. Uh, that's outside of Parliament in Ottawa in the streets in Parliament Hill, though. Uh, where does this leave us with Justin Trudeau? He's pulled out this emergency measure. He obviously feels like they need to get control of the situation. At the same time, a lot of the mandates and things that they are protesting against that kicked all this off look like they're going to kind of, I I hate to say fix themselves, but that's kind of what it looks like here in the next few weeks. A lot of that's just going to go away on its own. Where are we at with Justin Trudeau's leadership? Because he's out here pulling out the big stick now for something that's probably going to take care of itself at its end. You still have the demonstrations in the streets. The border looks Mm -hmm. like they're taking care of that. What's next for this big hot mess we got? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question because many of the provinces have already announced or started the process of repealing a lot of those restrictions, like capacity limits. In many provinces, as early as March 1st, will be the end of proof of vaccination for restaurants and gyms and sporting events and all of that. So we are gradually opening up. What what does this mean for Justin Trudeau? I don't know. I think given the fact that those things are opening up, it, it maybe adds another question mark as to why emergency measures are needed. You would think that 
as those things are are repealed and relaxed that some of the frustration will ease and so yeah i, I don't know i mean the the world will really be watching him and and we've seen this internationally uh, there was an outlet in in india where they called him the white knight of global democracy because he was very quick to comment on the protests in india and the importance of peaceful protesting now he may invoke extraordinary measures we don't know what exactly that'll look like and so it really will depend on how far this goes and how it's escalated and really the question of is any extraordinary measure going to make the situation worse i i relate it to the protests in in washington dc when trump rolled out I, I, I could have been the National Guard or the Capitol Police or whoever it was to essentially clear a road, maybe with or maybe not with tear gas, so he could take that silly picture with the Bible in front of the church. And it's like, that that did not help the situation. And so what Trudeau does next will either, maybe it will solve the problem because they'll be able to nip this in the bud and it'll be done with, or maybe it will make it worse and and the protesters become more steadfast and more willing to take whatever consequences may come sorry to david clement uh last question to kind of round this back off when we last spoke like we said uh there's not going to be an election or anything like that because y'all just had one obviously the conservatives you you've started out with it they have changed leadership now they obviously uh-huh. see this as a cudgel to go after Trudeau, no matter what they think of the actual protest. Uh, opportunity is an opportunity, and he doesn't look great here. Long term, next year or so, next 18 months or so, where do Canadian politics go from here after this, or is there going to be much of an effect at all? Well, I mean, the, the Conservative Party is at a bit of a tipping point. Um, the the front runner to take over for Aaron O'Toole is a man named Pierre Polyev, who I would say is without without as much of the the silly things, very much like a Ron DeSantis, where people will maybe appreciate his to the point. He doesn't necessarily sound like a politician all the time. He's willing to defend even his uncomfortable positions uh, and do so passionately. Whom the kind of centrist candidate to run against Pierre will be, we don't know. Uh, And then how that shakes out in a leadership race. There's a lot of runway between here and there. And so it really depends. I, I think we could see a situation where the the Conservative Party takes a shift to the right fiscally, um, to the right rhetorically. Um, it wouldn't be to the right socially, because our system doesn't operate that way. It would be almost, you could not get elected um, federally on a, a socially conservative uh, platform in this country. So I don't think that would happen. Um, but we may have a very different political landscape going into the next election, whenever that is, where I, I originally said that Trudeau would not stay on to run in that election, but I think that he will um, now. And it will be very interesting to see Justin Trudeau against someone like Pierre Polyev, whom a lot of people, a lot of working class people, like it would be very much the equivalent of without the ugliness of how Trump's approach appealed to Rust Belt voters, people who voted Democrat their entire life, who appreciated someone who was willing to call it as it is. Although I don't share that view of Trump. That was certainly how he was perceived. Um, So it'll, it'll be interesting, but a lot can happen 
between now and then. And technically, our government is a minority government, which means all it would take is one vote of confidence um, to go the other way, and we have another election. So, interesting times. And our neighbors to the north, David Clement, thank you for coming and giving us a few minutes of your time to kind thank of square you. away some of all this stuff. Let folks know where they can find you on social media. Consumer Choice Center does excellent work. I've got to join you and Yalel a time or two. Let folks know where they can find what you're doing. Yeah, uh, consumerchoicecenter.org at Clement Liberty on Twitter. Um, that's where you will see all of our all of our work, everything I write uh, in both Canada and the U.S. And you can even catch him on some YouTube clips doing some network TV in a suit and tie because he's big time now. <laughs> David yes, Clement, yeah, my looking friend. very formal. Yeah, not the uh, <laughs> Toronto Blue Jays hat you're wearing today to throw a little shade no. at Ottawa since you knew we were going to be talking about them because you are a Toronto sports fan. We saw what you did there, sir. It is noted. Uh, we'll get you in the rotation because I think Canada is going to be in the news for a while yet. Uh, thank you for the time, buddy. Appreciate you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Hi, welcome back to Herd Tell. Uh, we've been talking a lot about education. Uh, parents want more say in their education of their children. They want say in the curriculum. We've had the CRT debate that we have covered here. By the way, if you did not hear our friends from the Narrative Project, uh, Sofin Sodegren Booker on the program, breaking down how CRT was covered in the media, go back in the archives on the iTunes or Spotify or whatever podcasting platform or on YouTube and find it. Amazing, insightful information. But because of the CRT debate and other issues and things that went on during the pandemic, there are those who are saying that we should have cameras in the classroom. Uh, Michael McShane is writing in Forbes, and he says a headline, please don't put cameras in the classrooms. I read from it now. Uh, putting cameras in classrooms is one such idea. Even a moment's reflection should surface a proverbial Zanclean flood. I'll be honest, I had to click on that because I had no idea what that meant. Of negative consequences, both intended and unintended. And yet, like the tide swelling in and out, every so often someone says we should do it. Let's just walk through a through few of these problems with such a proposal. First, there are the privacy concerns. Any video of classrooms would have footage of children, minor children, in the large part. It shouldn't be have to be said, but I guess it must, that we should be incredibly careful about what we do with video footage of children. Think about ta taping into a live stream of a classroom or watching a recording, even for a total innocuous reason. Let's say that your child is in class and you want to see what they learned that day. Well, in watching what your child was doing, you'll also see what my child was doing. Maybe she was struggling to read something that day. Wish she could be embarrassed to show people. Maybe she shared something privately with the teacher that the video camera picked up. Or maybe I don't want you to watch video of my kid for any reason at all. How about that? Second, we don't want teachers to play to the camera. Think of this as a Senate confirmation hearingization of the classroom. If you've ever watched a confirmation hearing at length, you quickly start to realize that the senators aren't talking to the nominee or to their fellow senators. They're speaking to the audiences at home. This is why there are very few questions in most statements, and the questions that are asked are more of the variety designed to provoke a reaction that can be clipped for social media rather than to elicit a useful response. The same thing would happen in classrooms. Rather than seeing their students and their audiences, then trying to develop lessons and tasks that would bring out the best in them, Teachers would be encouraged to think about how best to perform for the parents at home. It would be an incentivized performative acts, projects, readings, and the like, not the careful formation of work that would bring and take place 
in a classroom or on the flip side, it would encourage bland and inoffensive lessons that bore children to tears, but never run the risk of ever offending anyone everywhere. Real formative work relies on trial and error, patience, mistakes, and corrections, none of which make for a great video. Third, and perhaps most glaringly obvious, it's insulting to the teachers. Other professions are not treated this way. I don't have a live feed of my accountant doing taxes. Every other public service servant, like public defenders, judges, and social workers, do almost all or all of their work outside the scopes of closed-circuit cameras. And at least according to our polling, north of 85% of parents reported that they already trust teachers to make good decisions. Is this a solution in search of a problem? Even if it isn't, who on earth would want to work in such a fishbowl? We've got a teacher shortage problem as it is. We've got a ton of education problem as it is. This ain't going to help. I agree with the piece. I'm completely against cameras in the classroom. You have no right to monitor my minor child, and there's no way you're going to do it without that. We need to realize schools are a partnership between the schools, the teachers, the students, and the parents. Putting cameras in the classroom is going to interrupt repairing that relationship, make it a lot harder on everybody involved, and it's going to be the kids that suffer for it. I'm against this proposal, and we will follow this as it develops. You can read the whole piece in Forbes.com. More Hertel right after this. Ah, welcome back to Hertel. You know, we try to usually end on a lighter note or a happier note. And this is one of those fun stories that pokes at a meme or a bias. You know, the one about the guy that sits in his basement playing his video games while his mom yells at him not to. This didn't happen here. Uh, from the Washington Post, this is written by Petula Dovic. It began in 2010 with a quintessential request. Mom, and mom was ready for it, no matter how weird, Susan Tenenbaum was used to her child's outside-the-box way of existing in the high-achieving D.C. area bubble. Mom, can we have the house for three days? Mike Uyama asked. He wanted to hold a marathon gaming session with 20 friends for charity. She decamped to a bed and breakfast. Now $35 million later, she's glad she said yes. That gathering at mom's basement has grown to become a powerhouse of charitable giving in the region. The Gamers Summer 2021 event raised over $2.9 million for Doctors Without Borders, quote, making it the largest fundraising event of the year, said Leila Fulahan, marketing manager for the International Aid Organization. Since 2011, Games Done Quick has raised over $15.7 million for the group. For perspective, in 2019, Uama's event single-handedly covered the cost of the aid organization's entire operation in Cambodia, or half of the Ebola fight in Liberia. On top of that, Uama's event gave $3.1 million to prevent Cancer Foundation in 2020. In 12 years, it has raised over $35 million, all that in jeans and a t-shirt. Uama, 38, wasn't the typical high-powered Northern Virginia child. He went to a special education school when he was young because he was still talking like a four-year-old, but he could read. Later, he lived at home while unenthusiastically taking classes at George Mason University. He briefly was a data analysis tech that left to work at a local wine and beer store. He lost that job when the store closed. Mom worried because, of course, she did. During his unemployment, he said, Mom, I just don't know what to do with my life, and I prayed quietly for him that he would listen, she said. Those are quotes. To the people telling him that this gaming thing he was doing on the side is real passion is his life, Tenenbaum said. Quote, we raised $10,000 that first year, Uama said, who worked so hard to stay out of the spotlight after there were constant rumors in the gaming community of his disappearance or maybe his prolonged illness. 
He is well-known and occupies an unusual space in the world of video games. Starting in 2009, he and his friends were streaming speedruns. It's a hardcore niche of gaming world in which players show you how fast they can finish the game. Now, hold on a second. We used to do that with Mario Brothers back in the day. We just didn't have any streaming to show anybody. I wasn't very good at it. Moving on. This was what he wanted to show the gaming world during the 2010 during MAGFest, the annual music and gaming festival, a big deal in the gamer world. But the MAGFest hotel, ironically, didn't have the connectivity to support that volume of gaming, so he moved it to his mom's basement, shuttling the hotshot players to and from the hotel for their time slots. The gaming world ate it up, and a tradition Yuama would name Games Done Quick was born. Good for him taking his passion, spreading it, and doing some really good stuff with it. That'll do it for Hertel today. Uh, still got plenty of week left. If you're missing anything, or you missed an episode or an interview, or you missed one of the long-form podcasts, or you hear us talking about how guests are returning, you want to hear the first time they were on the show. You can get all that wherever you are subscribed. If you want to watch on the YouTube page, if you want to listen on any of the podcasting platforms, it's all there for you. Uh, you can just go back through anything labeled Good Talks. Those are the interviews. The long-form podcasts have episode numbers with who the guest is right up on top and the subject matter. And of course, the weekday hard tells. Those are all in separate playlists on the YouTube channel. You can stream them. You can binge them, whatever you want to do. You can also share them, and we'd sure appreciate it if you do. However you're watching or listening, if you could put it on your social media, let people know that our little program is worth checking out, and that helps you discern the times we live in. So, till we see you tomorrow on Hertel or on any of the platforms, if you're watching something from the past, we hope you and yours are well. We hope you are well-fed. We can't wait to talk to you tomorrow for more Hertel. Take care. All the music on Hertel is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.